hey, if this is your first time with us, I just want to give you a heads up. So you're going to see this phone number up here. If you have a question while I'm speaking, feel free to shoot a text in, and we have a little Kindle. And after the message, Dan, Bob, and I will come up here and just kind of address any questions you guys might have about the scripture or just anything in life that could be completely unrelated to anything we talked about tonight. But we really value your input and interaction, and so we want to have a little bit of a dialogue with you when I'm done speaking. Uh, so talking on the Psalms, I don't know if anyone can relate to me in this, but when I read the Bible, like oftentimes I want to read like a monologue of something theological, or I want to read a story, uh, or a letter. I don't do well with poetry in general, and so sometimes when I'm in the Psalms, I'm like, man, like, I don't know what to do with this. I want, to move, I want to move on to something that is a little more accessible, that I can pretty quickly draw something from without having to put on my creative thinking cap. Uh, imagery, not quite my thing. Sarcasm is more my thing. <laughs> Directness and bluntness are probably my things, much more so than imagery and crafting of words. Um, and so I think that oftentimes I've kind of neglected the richness that the Psalms have to offer because um, maybe my personality or my understanding of literature has prohibited me from doing that in an easy way, but I think it's so important to recognize that the Psalms really are God's word, they're unique, um, and that they're also the words that are clearly of men expressing their relationship with God. And I love this quote by John Stott, who captures it really well. The Psalms speak the universal language of the human soul. Whatever our spiritual mood may be, there is sure to be a psalm which reflects it, whether triumph or defeat, excitement or depression, joy or sorrow. Praise or penitence, wonder or anger, above all, the Psalms declare the greatness of the living God as creator, sustainer, king, lawgiver, savior, father, shepherd, and judge. As we know him better through the Psalter, we fall down and worship him. Uh, I think the Psalms is just such a rich piece of literature, and it's a privilege that we can study that together here tonight. So I chose a really thought-provoking title, or maybe not thought-provoking, just provocative. It's pretty much just provoking. Satan quotes a psalm. Um, I wonder what people thought like in the services. They see that and they're like, what are they teaching on a connection now? Um, so those of you who know your Bible well know that I'm probably referring to Matthew 4. Um, maybe you didn't. Uh, you guys know the story of Jesus after he's been baptized, being tempted being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. I'm going to read a quick excerpt from Matthew 4. This is verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, uh, speaking of Christ, and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord God to the test. Those words from Satan, his, his angels, he will command his angels concerning you. Uh, and thereafter, that's a quote from Psalm 91. Maybe you, uh, I guess if you follow the footnotes and hash it all out, you, you would know that. But I wasn't aware of that. That's Psalm 91. Uh, and then Jesus fires back with Deuteronomy 6.16. Um, it's the only passage of scripture that Satan quotes in the entire Bible. Kind of interesting. Satan urged Christ to throw himself from the top of the temple and to trust God's angels to protect him as a mark of God's faithfulness. So why this verse? Like, why would Satan choose this one verse? Um, it's a good question. Let's take a look at Psalm 91. If you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up? Psalm 91. See what it has to say. We're going to 
kind of break this apart into a few different sections and work through it one chunk at a time. So starting in verse 1, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Uh, so here the psalmist is quoting a believer, making a statement of faith in verses 1 and 2. Those who trust and dwell in the shelter of the Most High, those who trust the Lord and live a life of faith in Him, rest completely covered by the all-able and almighty God. Don't read past that. That's really important. Um, that God is all-able and almighty, that's an immense act of grace in and, and of itself. Um, and really, I could probably, you know, not that I'm a great preacher or anything, but I could probably preach an entire sermon on just those first two verses. That the all-holy and almighty capable God is also my Lord. Um, believers are hidden away in Him, an impenetrable, impenetrable force of refuge. Um, this is a great quote, Charles Spurgeon, a British pastor from the 1800s, said, To take a general truth and make it our own by personal faith is the highest wisdom. It is but a poor comfort to say, the Lord is a refuge. But to say, he is my refuge, is the essence of consolation. Uh, how true is that? Here's a story. So, I love to talk about uh, myself, you all know that. So I like to run. And... Uh, Two years ago, I was in Tennessee, and I was going for a run. I left my house. It was like 6.45 in the morning, and it was really nice weather, very clear skies. And I parked my car at a park, and uh, I went for a run. And towards the end of my run, like, all of a sudden, like, this massive storm kicked up, and these winds were coming on like crazy. And, like, this is one thing that's really strange about me among many, is that I am, like, absolutely terrified of lightning. Like, it's really weird. Like, some people are like, oh, I love to run in the lightning. And, like, if I see lightning, like, I, like, run to get inside. Like, I'm terrified of getting struck by lightning. I had a substitute teacher in elementary school who claimed to have been struck seven times. He was so weird. <laughs> so, I'm mostly scared of not wanting to die by getting struck by lightning. And I'm a little pansy, so I don't want to feel any pain. But I don't want to get struck by lightning. I think you're probably with me. Anyways, so it was absolutely horrible. And I'm looking it back to my car, like terrified out of my mind. This is too much, but you know, sweaty guy in his little short shorts. All of a sudden, I'm about to cross over this train track where my car is parked on the other side of this train track. And these winds are blowing. They're like tree limbs falling down. I'm not kidding. I could see these tree limbs falling off trees. And this stupid train comes down the track and cuts me off. So I can't get across. And it's like a big coal train going through the mountains of Tennessee, through the haulers. And I could not get across the track. And so I'm standing there, and these cars are like lining up, waiting to get across. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like these poor people are going to see me die. <laughs> I was like, they're going to be scarred for the rest of their lives. But I'm not about to ask them, like, can I get in your car? But there was no better feeling than when that train was gone and I was in my car. The fact that there was a car there was no consolation, but it, when it was my car, I was like, yes, this is my car. And I felt so safe in my beat up 2001 Ford Escort. Um, you know, it was amazing, that feeling of safety and security. And the sad thing is, really, was I all that safe? You know, if my car got hit by a stiff breeze, I'd probably be out of luck. I could have easily wrecked myself. Somebody else could have knocked me over, and if it, the winds were really that bad, a tornado probably could have picked up my car and tossed it. Um, 
you know, I felt pretty safe, but in reality, we can only control our situations so much. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, passage said, Men generally seek out a great variety of hiding places, having recourse to one or another according as the calamities are different which threaten to overtake them. But here we are taught that the only safe and impregnable fortress to which we can betake ourselves is the protection of God. All other confidences are vanity by which we are apt to delude ourselves. Uh, let's continue on in looking at this truth. Let's check out verses 3 through 13. Here the psalmist kind of affirms and expounds upon uh, the believer's earlier statement of faith in verses 1 and 2. Uh, so picking up in verse 3, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. Uh, this disease. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Uh, I looked that up too. I didn't know what that meant. A rampart is a mound-like fortification structure. So like a big pile of dirt with a, something over top of it to keep you safe. Uh, you will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. This is interesting. So it was common in Hebrew poetry that references to a 1,000 were typically followed by references to 10,000. You guys remember the story of David and Samuel. Uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is kind of that same style. A 1,000 may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. I think it's important to acknowledge that the psalmist here doesn't turn a blind eye to reality. There are threats, the fowler snare, that's the temptation of the devil, the deadly disease, the pestilence. But God will lovingly and carefully cover those who make the most high their dwelling. They trust in Christ and live that life of faith and repentance. He'll cover them in safety as a mother bird protects her young under her wings. That's a cool image. There are arrows coming right at you, but you don't have to worry. You're covered over by a shield enclosed behind an invincible wall of protection. Um, and then he goes on to, to show those dangers. Some are seen, some are unseen. The plagues by day, the arrows are seen. Terrors that stalk in darkness. Disease that can be caught without ever even knowing it um, by night. And you'll see those around you who don't trust in the Lord fall to them. But you who trust in the Lord will be protected. That's what the text says. You will be actively guarded over by angels of God himself who will intercede and protect you from imminent danger. Um, you know... Sometimes people get carried away with things that, um, like angels, and like are obsessed with angels. But I think it's also wrong to see that to think that angels don't exist. Um, it's clearly in the text, and um, you know the same section in Matthew chapter four says that the angels attended to Christ after his temptation by Satan. Um, so I really do think that angels do exist, and that they're taught throughout Scripture. Um, and in the case of the psalmist, he talks about them being active, guarding over them, who will intercede and protect you from imminent danger. You will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Serpent. God's refuge trumps any danger, and his power enables his followers to live lives of bold faith instead of lives of sin and fear. 
Um, so in conclusion of this psalm, the psalmist quotes the Lord. Uh, so this is the psalmist quoting the Lord here, affirming the believer's faith in the psalmist's words. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So how does this truth that God cares for, protects, and acts on behalf of his people function in the lives of believers? Um, two different ways. First, I really think that sometimes it does function in the way that it, this psalm explains it as functioning at face value. Um, almost all of us have stories or have heard stories of people we know or people who in our, in our lives uh, we've come into contact with where they've been miraculously provided for, maybe by physical healing, maybe it was something financial, maybe it was a reconciled relationship or a victory over sin. Um, there are people who have radical conversions to Christ that can be only explained by divine action. That happens. Um, there are examples of this in stories throughout Scripture. The parting of the Red Sea, for one. Daniel in the lion's den, two examples from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Christ brought Lazarus back to, from death. Um, God broke Peter out of jail on one occasion. And another, he broke Paul and Silas out of jail. And another, Paul was stoned and dragged outside the city gate and thought for dead. The disciples gathered around him and he came back to life. And another, a guy got bored while Paul was preaching, fell out the window and died. Paul lifted him up and God brought him back to life. Um, so, I mean, it's clearly in scripture. God can do stuff like this and um, we can take this at face value and say, you know what? Sometimes God does provide in miraculous ways like this. He's mighty and powerful and completely able. Um, he really is that refuge for his people. He's worthy of our trust. And we have the privilege of being able to petition to him through prayer um, for refuge against those things. Um, he's able to act on our behalf. In part two, we can also look at our lives and we can look at the lives of people around us and say, how the heck could this possibly be in God's will? Um, you know, there are times where we look at a face value interpretation of Psalms 91, of Psalm 91 and feel like it's horribly inappropriate and maybe even offensive. Uh, why do people who love God live a life of faith, suffer and die of terrible diseases and accidents. Um, there are stories that I could tell and stories that you could tell to illustrate this point, but I'm not going to do that because they're too deep and painful and personal and mysterious. can't make sense of them, and some of them are still ongoing, and I don't know why God would allow them to happen. Um, do I still believe Psalm 91 is true? Yes. Um, is this tension, is this truth that sometimes... This face value interpretation of Psalm 91 doesn't seem to be stacking up. Is this um, something that we could gather from Scripture as well? Well, listen to this from Christ. This is what he says to his disciples when he's talking to them about the end times, the last days. Um, For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Uh, by the way, this is Luke chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? Like, some of you will be put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. Like, what are you saying? How does that make sense? Um, I think Jesus had a bigger picture in mind of what he was really talking about. 
let's look at uh, let's look at some examples here. This is from a book called Fox's Book of the Martyrs that was written in 1559. It's a Puritan book. Let's look at how the lives of the apostles worked out. So you heard that last little quote that Jesus said to them. Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. This might be really depressing, but you need to know it. Um, all the, of all the apostles, John was the only one who died peacefully. Uh, you may want to know, though, that he survived being boiled alive and was exiled. Stephen was stoned. James was beheaded. Peter was hung upside down in Rome. Andrew was killed on the X-shaped cross in Greece. Philip was crucified in Greece. Thomas was murdered in India. Matthew was murdered. Simon was crucified in Egypt. Bartholomew was beheaded in India. Philip was stoned and crucified. Oh my gosh, these are horrible things. <laughs> so how could those who lived with Christ and he told them not a hair on their head would be harmed come to an end such as those uh, without losing their faith, with completely trusting him, following his mission and believing this promise that God was a refuge all the way to the end. Listen to this story of Andrew. This is the Apostle Andrew. This story, I feel like, really helps us to start to glimpse at what that hope and these promises of God really looks like and how deep a level this trust we can have and the refuge we can take in the Lord really goes. Let's listen to this. This is uh, from that same book, and this is information gathered from the writings of St. Cyprian and St. Bernard. Not a dog, but a writer. Um, so, when Andrew, through his persistent preaching, had brought many to the faith of Christ, Aegeus, the governor, asked permission to the Roman Senate to force all Christians to sacrifice to and honor the Roman idols. Andrew thought he should resist Aegeus and went to him, telling him that a judge of men should first know and worship as judge God in heaven. While worshiping the true God, Andrew said, he should banish all false gods and blind idols from his mind. Furious at Andrew, Aegeus demanded to know if he was the man that had recently overthrown the temples of the gods and persuaded men to become Christians, a superstitious sect that had recently been declared illegal by the Romans. Andrew replied that the rulers of Rome didn't understand the truth. The Son of God who came into the world for man's sake taught them that the Roman gods were devils, enemies of mankind teaching men to offend God and causing them to turn away from them by serving the devil. Men fall into all kinds of wickedness, Andrew said. And after they die, nothing but their evil deeds are remembered. The proconsul ordered Andrew not to preach these things anymore, or he would face a speedy crucifixion. Whereupon Andrew replied, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. He was condemned to be crucified for teaching a new sect and taking away the religion of the Roman gods. Andrew, going toward the place of execution and seeing the cross waiting for him, never changed his expression. Neither did he fail in his speech. His body fainted not, nor did his reason fail him, as often happens to men about to die. He said, O cross, most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind, joyously and desirously I come to you, being the scholar of him which did hang on you, because I have always been your lover and yearn to embrace you. Wow. Andrew had no fear of death. Nothing, not even death, could separate him from the love of God that he had in Christ. When we believe these promises of Psalm 91, when we believe they're true, we can know that sometimes God will act as our refuge just like we would hope he would. Sometimes he does it in ways that are really appealing to us and seem really comforting. Other times, God's will likes, looks quite different from our will, and he acts as our refuge in being present with us in times of trouble, as the psalmist says in verse 15, providing ultimate rescue for us in the end. 
rather than removing us from the places of pain. We can trust that God is wise and He is good, even if we don't understand His will in the present. Um, And looking back to Matthew, the lie that Satan tried to sell Christ in misusing this psalm. He misused this psalm to Christ to try and tempt him to think that if God was really really a faithful refuge for his people, that the Father could be presumed to provide for him in any and every single situation Christ put himself in. This is a temptation to live life according to his own directions. Ultimately, this was a temptation for Christ to think that there could be another way than the cross. Um, But Christ rejected it. He sought refuge in the Father and maintained his faithfulness to the Father's mission um, as a result of that refuge. He knew there would be no crown without the cross, and he trusted the Father would be faithful to him and bring him ultimate victory over death and saving his people. Um, Although he knew the road would be hard, he trusted in God the Father, his refuge, and God did sustain him. Um, And we can orient our lives around that truth. So the prayer of the psalmist is our prayer. We can make this prayer, Psalm 91, our prayer. And I can tell you, this psalm is about us. But most importantly, this psalm is about Christ. Psalm 91 and Matthew 4 offer us a snapshot of the life of Christ. This imagery is is amazing. He was tempted by the fowler's snare. This is straight out of Psalm 91. And this all echoes the story of Christ being tempted in the wilderness. And it echoes... The life of Christ. Um, He was tempted by the fowler's snare. Pursued by Satan, the great lion, and the crafty serpent. He found refuge in the the Father, was attended to by angels. Uh, Christ literally experienced those threats in this text. Found refuge in the Lord in his temptation in the wilderness. And he again took them up on our behalf entirely. Um, In his death on the cross, rising again and winning victory and refuge for his people once and for all. When we think about the threats and fears that weigh in on us, we can take comfort. The ultimate miracle of refuge that you wait for has already been won on your behalf. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate miracle. There will be times of trouble and heartbreak where we have no idea what is going on and why. Um, We don't understand what's happening, but we can trust that God will be faithful. He'll be present with us through all of that. After the cross, there was an empty tomb, and like Christ, we too know that in this world there will be trouble, as he says in John 16, 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, So to close with another quote from Charles Spurgeon, I love this one. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him, sickness is his medicine, reproach is his honor, death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the world of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure where others are in peril. He lives where others die. Let's pray. Father, our only hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ, and his work on our behalf, not our record, but the redemption that he gives us by his work on our behalf on the cross. Lord, we thank you for your word, that you teach us that you are our refuge, Lord, that you are worthy of our trust, and that you will be faithful to your people. We thank you that you've given us your word so that we can know who you are and that we can have faith in Christ, um, that we can know 
What is best for us from your word that you empower us by your spirit to turn away from our natural inclinations, Lord, our tendencies to live with ourselves as the center of our lives and to love the wrong things. Um, you empower us through your spirit to turn away from those things. Father, uh, there is so much pain in the world, things that we don't understand, things that are in our lives, things that are in our relationships that weigh down on us. God, we trust that you are sovereign over those things and that you are there with us in these times of trouble, that you walk with us and you love us and you move us past them, you comfort us in the midst of them, Lord, and that we can have full comfort in Christ right now. We don't have to wait for our situation to get better, that you are our comforter, you are our refuge. So help us to understand what that looks like when the world around us is confusing, God. We thank you for your word. Uh, we trust it to be true, and we pray that you would apply it to our hearts through the gospel of Christ, in whose name we pray together. Amen. You guys want to come on up? If you guys have any more questions or anything, you can feel free to text them in. But uh, we got a couple pretty good ones here. Yeah, let's let's go for it. I don't claim to have any answers, that's for sure. Well, we got five up here. Other than other than what Psalm ninety one says. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, the first one, um, we'll, we'll start with a, an easy one, one of those hypotheticals. What would have happened if Christ had jumped from the temple? <laughs> Don't you love those kind of questions? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what would have happened. Maybe he would have fallen. Um, you know, when you think of Jesus, sometimes you forget one of two things. Either his deity or his humanity. And both of them, the scriptures tell us, was fully realized in Jesus. So he was fully God and fully man. Which means, theoretically, he could have fallen and broken his neck. Right? Um, and more than theoretically, when he was a kid... Everything that happened to regular kids happened to Jesus. It just so happened that whatever happened to him did not intercept his mission. I think that's the key thing. So whatever would have happened to Jesus, had he fallen off the temple, it would, have not, it would not have intercepted his mission, which was ultimately the cross. I might even touch it. Let's keep going. Uh, Psalm 91.7 says, and you touched on this, Josiah, uh, that death won't touch you, but as you read that long list of things, death certainly touches uh, Christians at one point, uh, all of us. How do we make sense of that? Well, I think that he's really, when he says a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, I think he's speaking of more than just physical death. I think that Believers never really truly fall. Um, if we trust in Christ, He sustains us. That may result in our physical death, but eternally we're going to be alive physically and spiritually. Um, and so I think that it's kind of talking about death in two different ways. It would be interesting to look at the different words, but I think a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side is kind of referring to those who aren't following and trusting um, under the shadow of the Almighty, um, dwelling in Him, and so kind of a distinction. Yeah, I, I know the Bible speaks of death in at least three different ways. There's a spiritual death, physical death, and then there is the eternal death. 
uh, which Revelation, book Revelation refers to as the second death. And so when we're reading it, we're assuming, oh, must mean physical death, you know, separation from spirit, from soul from body. Um, I don't think so. Because uh, certainly that would have been nonsensical. David died. All the psalmists died. Everyone they'd ever known had died. Good and righteous people among them. But the ultimate, second, uh, everlasting, eternal death didn't touch any of them. Okay. <laughs> Here's a great question. How do we know all this Christian stuff is real and worth the effort? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, when we talk about it, I think that there are a lot of arguments that can be made from logic and reason and can be drawn from uh, all kinds of philosophical you know, principles and rules that people look to. And those things are valid and they're important arguments. But I can also say that I believe the Christian life is worth living because I have trusted in it and I have seen that the power of Scripture has been made evident in my own personal experience um, and that I have felt God's presence in my life in a way that I can only understand by saying I really believe that there is a living, active God who is evident in the way this world works and in the way my work, my life has functioned as an individual. Um, is it worth all the effort? That's a great question. What do you guys think? This is a huge question. Okay, I mean, play on some of the, the logical reasons why I believe that the Christian message is real, that the gospel is real. Uh, the tomb is em was empty. Uh, the apologetic, the reasons behind that are so compelling. For me, one of the greatest reasons to believe the gospel message is true is the existence of the church. That, that we are here today, 2,000 years later, uh, after persecution, after those disciples who Josiah read about all had died proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead. Those are some incredibly difficult things to navigate around if you want to deny the truth of Christianity. But that the Holy Spirit's witness inside of me, that personal experiential, is, is absolutely compelling as well. Is it worth it? it? Well, if the gospel message isn't true, if Christ wasn't risen, then no, it's not worth it. Paul says that straight up, you know, eat, drink, do whatever you want, because tomorrow we die, it doesn't matter. But if the tomb was empty, if the gospel is true, then there is eternity. There is eternity with Christ and eternity with Christ and God to be lost if you don't believe and follow the message. So, yeah, I find it incredibly compelling for those reasons and more. Yeah, I agree with all that, Dan. Um, I'll just add a couple of things instead of reiterating what he said. Um, this is not this Christian message. It's not only the greatest story ever told, but in my opinion, it's the only story that makes sense of reality. It, it, the longer I stay at this thing, and I, and I want you to hear this as a word of encouragement, the more sense it makes. The longer I invest in my faith, the more confident I am in the resurrection. I have literally gotten to the place that it's true. I can say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as much as I believe that you're here tonight. And I'm looking at you. 
I don't think I could have said that when I was 19. But after all this time of walking with Christ and feeling Christ's presence and watching Christ in my life, I'm so utterly convinced I'm beyond being unconvinced. It's really true. Um, historically, I think, for all the reasons Dan said, I agree. But this is that existential statement I want to leave you with. Um, the reality is, to me, just overwhelming. There's nothing that makes more sense than this. Any of us would love to have a conversation about that with you. If this is something you're kind of thinking about, I can say for myself, I'll get a lot less sweaty if we have a conversation about it rather than answering it up front. <laughs> and a little quick Q&A. It's like, man, I'm exhausted. You can ask me that? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. We'd love to talk about it more, so... Come see us when we have like our office hours or something. It'd be so fun. I'll buy you a coffee. Come on. What do you want? We're done here, but do you want to probably time for one, maybe two more? If there's another one out there. Yeah. So I think from like a secular viewpoint, it might be easy to like uh, misinterpret Psalm 91 to be uh, well, if you have you know your God, you don't have to take these like advances in medicine or whatever. Like we eat the Church of Christian Scientists or whatever. How do you like explain to a like an atheist or agnostic that like line? Yeah, I would say you know the, the Israelites who believed these commands or these promises still wore armor in the battle. Uh, you know they were doing things to not put themselves in harm's way intentionally. They were basically not throwing themselves off temples and saying, "Well, God, you promised." And I think that's a good model for us to follow. You know, it doesn't mean they weren't going out and planting crops and just expecting God to provide. They, they were still being responsible uh, in, in their in the way they trusted, but understanding that even those crops that grew were coming from God. Even the protection that was provided by the armor or the medicine was ultimately you can give God the credit for that. I think it's gracious that God has created people with minds. And the ability to create medicines. And, uh, you know, like, I think that God sovereignly used um, the people of Israel in different ways in coming into their kingdom to conquer the people who were currently inhabiting those lands. And if they would have been like, you know what, Steve over there created those swords, but, you know, that's man-made. So let's just fight them with our fists because God made our bodies and Steve made those swords. It's like, wow, you guys are really out of luck. Um, so I think that God creates people with the ability to be creative. And that is evident in the way that people are able to make medicines. And I guess that would be my argument. Yeah, I would also say that there is a rich history in the Christian tradition of embracing the sciences and medicine and all that kind of thing. And it didn't start with the Enlightenment or in the 20th century. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, written by a physician. Right? It wasn't like he said, oh, it's either healing or it's medicine. It was both, because God's sovereign over all things. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is don't, don't underestimate this, guys. Um, I can remember being your age, and I can remember being overwhelmed by the answers or the questions of the critics and not feeling like I had the answer. First of all, you've never had the answer. Second of all, here's what I don't want you to underestimate. The power of the apologetic, that means defense, in the word itself. 
right? You don't have to have the answer for the critic's question because frequently the answer for the critic's question is for you to fully understand scripture so that you can take that person to another passage and say, yeah, but we need to interpret that statement in light of this one, right? So frequently, one of the biggest problems we have in the defense of our faith, honestly, is that we don't interpret the, scripture, the scriptures holistically. We don't take it all into account. We just get all wigged out about this one little thing. And most of the explanation for our dilemma is found elsewhere in scripture when it all holds together. So um, I, I can't, I can't overemphasize this statement. Study the word. Get into it. Memorize it. Know it like the back of your hand. It's the only book that's eternal. It's the only absolutely truthful revelation of God to humanity. And it's the book of life. Get to know it. Um, so much of your answers to critical questions will come with knowledge of the scripture itself. So. I think that's a really good note to bring the worship team back up on. So Wait, wait, wait before we do. Or not. Just like, yeah, just like, <laughs> Uh, I want to say something completely unrelated to any of these questions. Um, this next week's the last connection, but this week is the next to last connection this year. And this is the first full year that Josiah has been in charge. And I just want to say thank you. I can't imagine.